Welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast, and speaking of music, that song that played me in is entitled Green Eyes. It's from the self-titled Chris Cohen album, Chris Cohen, and you probably put two and two together. My guest today is Chris Cohen. He's also part of the Curtains and Deerhoof, and he is a producer who've done who's done many a great album, including Fantasize Your Ghost by Ohm and Macy Stewart, who's half of Ohm, has also been a guest. And I know we talked about the album. We probably talked about Chris Cohen. I don't remember. It was like two years ago. I do remember recording the episode, I think, in my bathroom because of my loud children. <laughs> but that's besides the point. Um, Chris Cohen is my guest. It's a great episode. All things Chris Cohen is in the show notes where you can buy that album that that song is from which is great. You could buy some curtains, did some Deerhoof stuff, go buy Deerhoof stuff. Deerhoof, not in the show notes, but Chris Cohen is. Uh, this intro has been a real challenge to record. I've had sounds. I've made mistakes. I've had my computer shut down in the middle of it without even touching it. It's been a lot of fun. Also, th- which reminds me, is because I'm kind of talking about my own life, and I always struggle with the podcast, whether I should, I don't know, allow you to know a little something about me in the intro. And then I was listening to the radio the other day, and some guy was talking about himself way too much. And I was like, dude, can you just fucking get to the song that I want to hear, or the music, or just anything but you talking? So I realized I probably shouldn't talk in the intro, which I'm doing right now. But I feel like you get a good sense of who I am in a lot of the interviews, so... What do you need to hear about my recent pasta debacle or the pizza I made? No. You're not here for me. You're here for the guests. And that's always been the sort of approach I've taken to the podcast. So sometimes I've had a little ramble bambles at the top here. I think I'm going to fucking knock that the fuck off and just get to the stuff that's important, like my website, themattwire.com. Where this Chris Cohen, Chris Cohen and I talked for an hour and 30 minutes. Some of it you can't hear because it was private talk, and that's just the way it goes. But there is an additional 15, 20 minutes where we talked about him working with Chris Cohen, uh, sort of his evolution of the curtains and deer hoof, and a little bit about the restaurant we worked at together, which was filled with a lot of uh, artists and musicians, some who played in Brian Jonestown Massacre. And other stuff. But that's only for Patreon-exclusive member people. So you can go to themattdwire.com. $5 a month gets you bonus content, extra half hour. Usually I do part twos to the interviews. There's blogs. I sort of do music reviews. Uh, There's video often of the conversation. So if you want to look at, say, Chris Cohen's handsome mug, uh, themattdwire.com. All things Matt Dwyer there. Merch. Social media. I'm getting off of Twitter. I've had a fucking enough of Twitter. I'm giving it like a month and I'm off of it. I just want to make sure people follow me elsewhere. So Instagram right now is the best. I hate social media in general, but it's a necessary evil if you have shit to promote. Anyway, themattdwire.com. Also, if you need a website, you can go to kellyrdwire.com and get a website designed by the person who did mine. She also does My Favorite Murder. She also designed Two Children With Me. By that, I mean I impregnated her once in a soaking tub in San Francisco. But that's if you want the details to that, 
Become a Patreon subscriber and hear all about the sex I have with my wife. Okay, not true. Not true at all. All right, I'm going to get on to the conversation here. Please, the metal. Oh, and just here's something. If you'd like the podcast, tell your friends. You could write a review, but I'd rather you just tell people. I'm tr- Word of mouth is better than some fucking five-star bullshit on the internet. Um, all right, that's it. Here's my great conversation with Chris Cohn. I really enjoyed this. Enjoy. Everyone shits on the valley, and the valley's pretty great. When I lived there, I fucking loved it. And it, 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 like, there was mm. real diners and real shitty dive bars there, which you don't get on the other yeah. side of the hill. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a lot of nostalgia and love for the valley. <clears throat> I mean, it's definitely... Um, I've, you know, I've considered there, there actually, there was a second where like, uh, my partner and I almost moved out there. Um, and, um, I just realized that we wouldn't, wouldn't see our friends very much. I feel like it's, it's not like it's that far by LA standards in a car and stuff, but it's, um, it's going in a direction. Like, I feel like if it's just not on the way to like other things that you might go to, like I live in Altadena now, which is probably equally as far, but at least it's sort of like, I don't know, just where it is, it sort of makes more sense in terms of like my friends and stuff. But I, I I love, I mean, the Valley is great and it's like, it changed, it hasn't changed quickly in a way that other places have. It sort of was like, it's sort of a time capsule kind of place. And yeah, we, um, we lived in Sherman Oaks like about five years ago. And the fact that there was like, old neighborhood bars where you could step in and it was like you weren't even in LA anymore I was like am I in Wisconsin (laughs) I know what you're talking about yeah oh my god I used there was a place right down the street from where my parents lived um called the Oyster House I was was just gonna say that the Oyster House rules I love that place I mean I've only been there twice but um yeah it's like a music it's a place where studio musicians hang oh really did you know that? Yeah. It's, it's, um, there's some nights where they would have, or the one of the first time I went there, there was like live music and it was like really good. Um, it was like pretty good jazz. It was like real, like studio people that were just kind of like playing for fun. That's, awesome. I thought that was just such an amazing, amazing window into that world. Yeah. I went to the, when the Ramada Inn, what it's not the Ramada Inn anymore, but it was on Vermont. Now it's called the Hollywood hotel of Hollywood or some, something stupid oh, uh-huh. <laughs> i know what you mean yeah but the basement there had like a jazz night that was just like and it was all studio dudes and somebody who like played with coltrane like it was and it was it was me yeah. and two other people and probably one of the best nights of music i'd like i was just mind-blowing jazz and i'm like why is this not packed yeah i mean that's what i love about ellie it's just like it's so big that um there's like always something new to find and it's just sort of like anonymous in the way that I'd like a city to be. Um, yeah. And there's like such, there's like so many amazing musicians here, of course, (laughs) but I feel like nowadays it gets more, it gets more respect from the rest of the world. Like people, people like LA now generally. I mean, I didn't used to. I've always, as a, like, obviously I moved from the outside and I was, 
Like I was immediately taken with the city and in love with it. And I was like, what? How, cool. how do people sh- shit talk this place? Like it's, and people are like, there's yeah. no food. And I'm like, are, are you trying? <laughs> right. Well, it's gotten, yeah. I mean, it's changed a lot too, but I know what you mean. But I mean, I mean, I get, I also get like the things that people did shit talk LA about are true. Like, you know, it is like a horribly like unjust place. And, you know, you, it's impossible to get around without a car. It's not impossible, but it's really hard. And it's, and, um, and like, yeah, there's like a lot of like, there's a lot of like stupid culture coming out of LA, but that's not like, that's not the LA that everybody lives in, you know? Yeah. That's just the idea of LA. Everybody, you can't get around without a car argument. I have a big fuck you for, because I lived in Chicago Mm. and it's like, it, there's good, and New York but if you don't live in one of the right neighborhoods you're kind of fucked and like stuck too so it's like that's a little bit of a little bit of privilege there people (laughs) yeah well there's yeah there's very few places in in the US that really actually have like uniformly good public transportation as far as I know um unlike some parts of the world, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm from the suburbs, so I'm just kind of like, and I'm, you know, I grew up with car culture and I was lucky enough to be able to get a car when I was a teenager and stuff. So I'm like, I'm very, it's very comfortable for me to be here. But I mean, I, I understand like it would be, if you're also, if you're from a place where you can get around on foot more easily, I'm sure this does seem stupid and it is stupid because it's not, not sustainable for everybody to be driving around in a car. But it is very comfortable for me. It's what I'm used to, but, uh, I get the criticism and I mean, I think it's, I, I mean, I've lived in other places where I didn't need a car and it was great. So I get, I get that. Yeah. I am a little spoiled cause I didn't even have a driver's license when I moved to LA. Like it expired and I was uh-huh. like, I was like, Oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna need this. And then I moved here and I was like, Oh fuck, I need this. <laughs> you really, you really need it. Yeah. I had, I didn't have a car when we first moved back. Um, I, I left LA, and lived in Vermont for a couple of years, and then when we moved back here, um, did you go to San Francisco? And I sh- did I? Oh no, we lived in Vermont for like three years. I, I did live in San Francisco also um, for like in the nineties, early two thousands. But um, but when I got back here, I didn't. My girlfriend and I were sharing a car, so I was just I was on foot most of the time because she was working on the west side. So um, I was like there was like three years where I was just kind of like, you know, riding the train everywhere and stuff. And it was like, actually I liked it, but it was, I just did a lot less. And as soon as I got a car, I was like, Oh yeah, I can like go to shows now. And it was like, this makes so much more sense, but it is doable. It was, it was okay. Yeah. It's a little hard to get home from a show at midnight. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just, I just wouldn't go. And I mean, I got a lot, I got a lot more done. I did a lot less, less socializing and more like working. So your father was in the music industry, was he not? Yeah, he was. So it was it was just this thing that that was constantly in your life since day one? Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I mean what I you know like the the music business that I'm part of is like so different than the world that he was part of. They're almost I mean, there's parts where they connect, I guess, but it's 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 a completely different thing. But um but yeah, my dad was um he was like a, you know, major label a and R guy, and he worked at the Fillmore East in um, New York City in the '60s, and then he worked at he worked at the Wiltern Theater when they reopened it in the '80s. So he was involved in live music and and uh, mainstream, you know, major label music. So 
it was around, but I guess what I'm trying to say is growing up in LA, that was not the music. That was not what I considered. Like I considered that like a separate thing from like the music that I cared about. I mean, I wasn't like, I mean, not to say that I didn't listen to mainstream rock and roll stuff, major label music, but when I started going to shows and having like my, my sort of my own music, um, experience for myself it was like so separate from what my dad was part of um i can tell you more about that if you want to know about like what that was like in the 90s in la that is interesting i'm interested though like was there like the separation of like was it like a notable like your dad's music is this and you go off into a different direction sort of i don't know i I don't want to say rebelling but just sort of finding your own way or was does that make sense um yeah i mean uh I guess I would say that the doors weren't really open to me to like, I mean, it wasn't like any other, it wasn't like a choice. I don't know if I was rebelling. I mean, maybe, but I, it wasn't like I was like being groomed to like go work. Like I wasn't, uh, it was never presented as an option. Like, Oh, you're going to be the singer songwriter (laughs) on a major label or like, or you're going to work for, you know, like, like I was never, the door was never open for me to like, you know, go into working in the music business. I mean, some kids, I mean, I grew up in, you know, I went to like private school and there were a lot of people in the entertainment industry, families. And, you know, sometimes the kids would be sort of groomed to like go into that. That was not the case um, for me. And I just was, you know, recording music on my four track at home when I was a teenager. And, um, you know, I started playing drums when I was really little and I just was always making music, but the door was never like, it was never like, Oh, you know, do you want to go, my parents were like helping me build a music career. Um, and it just sort of, I just, you know, got involved in making my own weird, you know, music at home and then joining bands and playing, you know, going to a different kind of music culture. Yeah. I, here in LA. Yeah. I, Cause I've read about you making like, your own recordings with boom boxes and which is pretty inventive for, I don't know, for someone that <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you were like a kid and you were doing pretty insane yeah. shit. Like I don't, well, yeah, I mean, I was not, the, I'm sh- I mean, I know why I was not, uh, I know that that was a common thing. Like I, I know I was not the only kid that was doing that, but actually I didn't, it wasn't like someone showed me that. I just, I just like, it occurred to me like, Oh, you could, you could just play this back and then record it on another boombox it was like once i realized you could do that i was like i could make my own albums and i just this it still is what drives me i guess to this day is the idea of being able to like just make it with sort of consumer equipment do you still do that a lot like record using like boomboxes not- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well I, I, mean, I mean i've listened yeah. to your music i know it's not on a- <laughs> i mean some of it sounds like that probably but i use i mean i think using your phone to record i mean I, I do a lot of recording on my phone like voice memos and stuff like everybody does i mean that's sort of the modern day equivalent it's basically yeah same thing um but yeah consumer equipment kind of yeah i mean i mean that's i think you know now now we live in an era where that does it's a it's a blurry line between you know basically everybody's and everybody is uh is a consumer amateur and you know everybody's a consumer and a maker, and those lines are are not as strong as they yeah. used to be. Right? But like as in that era, like taking you know a cassette player and making 
to me, that's like a pretty, I don't know. I don't think a lot of kids are that fucking savvy or like, <laughs> I don't mean to pat you are. on the back. Oh, no, okay. Maybe you, I was yeah. just stupid and I'm equating it to myself at that age. No, I mean, I think people just do, people do whatever people find a way, you know, whatever, whatever they, whatever shit they have at their disposal, they're probably going to, if, if they want to do it bad enough, you're going to find a way. Like, you know, people can make music with anything really. I mean, um, I was lucky to have, I had some stuff, like I had like a drum set and I had, you know, a boom box and my parent, I had my parents record collection and stuff. I was really lucky. I mean, I had like a lot at my disposal. Um, and I just didn't know that there was such a thing as a four track. And as soon as I figured it out, as soon as I like saw one or learned about it, I was like, Oh, of course, like that's what I need. And of course they already existed. I don't know why it's funny that, um, I wonder why my parents were encouraging, like they, you know, they got me a drum set and it's, if I was a kid now, I mean, if I had a kid, I would probably get them a, a four track or the equivalent, you know, garage band or whatever. Um, it seems like such a basic tool nowadays yeah. to music making. Do you think your parents were aware of that? You were sort of experimenting there just like, let's leave him alone and see what he does. Um, they left me alone. <laughs> I don't know if, I don't Mine know if too, that was, but the, for I, different reasons, yeah. they had to go to the bar. Yeah. I mean, kind of similar thing. I mean, I don't know if they, I don't think it was a, I don't think they were being like conscientious about, about it. I think they just, you know, I mean, I don't know. I guess they sort of, you know, I think that they believed that I would find a way somehow, but I don't think that it wasn't like they were like, that wasn't part of their plan. They were, they had a lot else going on. And you, um, so do you still have any of those recordings? How old were you too? That's the other thing. I'm yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I have all, the, I have all my old four track recordings, the boombox ones, those I feel like might be lost, but I mean, that was probably when I was like, um, I'm trying to think if I picture which house I was in, I was probably like when I started doing that, it was probably like about nine or 10. If I had to guess. That's so this was, I was, so I was born in 75. So this was the mid eighties. And then I think I got a four track probably when I was like 11 or 12 or something. So I was pretty, I was like raring to go, you know? What subject matter were you, What were, did you like write love songs? <laughs> I don't know why that um, made me laugh. A 10 year old yeah, writing love songs is pretty interesting. I know it's, it's cool. Yeah. It's cool to think about like, what well, yeah. What would a 10 year old, like what kind of music does a 10 year old make? Um, I was, I was mostly concerned with like, instrumental i mean i was like you know i i was a drummer first so what i really wanted to do was like be the drummer in a band um but then like i didn't have anyone else in the band so i had to like okay i gotta play guitar just to like write a i gotta write something that i can play drums to that was like probably like my first um inclination and then i i started i started make singing a little you know more and i think i wrote like maybe like a couple songs you know i didn't really start writing songs probably until i was like like properly trying to write songs until I was maybe like, I would say like 15 or something, 14 or 15. I probably started writing some really bad <laughs> songs. I remember I got dumped when I was like 15. I wrote a bunch of songs after I got dumped. <laughs> uh, do you see any thing in what you, thematics or anything consistent yeah. from the songs you wrote then to now? Yeah. 
yeah, total. I don't think I've changed at all. I mean, actually, when I you're still writing about the person from 15. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't mean that I'm like, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, I don't mean that I'm writing about the same exact. It's not about lyrics. I don't. Not in terms of lyrics, but just in terms of like what what inspires me to make songs or what the like what my interests are. They're not that different. It's like what I've listened. Like I, I still have like the very first things I recorded on the four track, and I actually listened to them again. Like a year or two ago because I got I got a four track again to play them on and um and it's like it's like one song is like me trying to be like the Stones one song is like me trying to be Jimi Hendrix one is me trying to be the Who and it's like those are that's still kind of those are like a real you know uh like those are my my gods that I still <laughs> you know, aspire to. And, um, and I think what I really want to do is just play instruments and I want to play every instrument and I just want to put sounds together. I just want to connect sounds and just like play grooves and make sounds that I like. And that's, it's the same drive probably. So I haven't changed. So it's more, you do you take that say when you start writing something do you go for more for the sound first than say like something like a feeling or emotion or a thought i mean i don't think about it in terms of words like that i mean i think i think um part of something about music to me is like actually i want to be a certain sound like it's it's a it's a it's melding um, your who you as a person or your identity or something with an actual sound. It's sort of like pretending to be a different person. You're like, I'm going to be John Entwistle for a second. It's just like, I want to become that sound. I want to be, it's like role-playing or something. It's, it's, um, and then it's just, I want to put things together. It's just a, a drive to put things together, really, to like assemble parts. Was Keith Moon one of your first drummer influences um yeah i loved keith yeah i mean i i yeah definitely i tried and i and and i also i i mean i actually because like i don't feel this way now but as a kid i thought i thought well i can do anything because like i could play you know like 16th note fills and i was like i can just i can i am keith i can be keith you know what i mean like he was something i could aspire to now i realize actually all of the subtlety like i'll all the ways in which I could, I will never be Keith Moon, but, but, um, but just in a simplistic way, he was a good, yeah, he was like something that a kid could like easily aspire to in terms of the energy behind it and sort of the, like, just the like, um, confidence, the sort of like uh, brash confidence of it. It was something that like as a kid, I think, you know, like I could relate to or whatever. And, um, and, and that music was, Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say his persona, too. Like, he was fun and silly. Right. Where, like, I don't know, John Bonham seemed like a real serious dude. <laughs> mm, yeah. And Neil Peart, I mean, like, Neil Peart was just, like, from space. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I don't think I could tell. I mean, now when I look at Keith Moon, like, if you see videos of him, it's, like, his funny, like, the funniness of him, of him is also, like, it seems so sad. Like, there's, like, such a darkness beneath it that we all, like, now we know about or whatever. I mean, you can't... I never thought... Never, like, knew about that as a kid or could see that. But now I see that. I see that really strongly. Also with all of them. I don't know Neil Port. I'm not a big Rush fan. But, but um, 
but Bonham too, right? Like there's, there's like this big, uh, there's this, there's a real, uh, a lot of pain probably or that I imagine behind and behind their, those guys is, uh, their identities. Yeah. It's kind of wild. Cause I've like, as an adult look back at some, like I watched a documentary about William S. Burroughs recently. And I always thought like, Oh, the coolest, one of the coolest dudes ever. And I just watched it. And I was like, this guy is so fucking sad <laughs> and broken. Oh, yeah. Like it's just on. And I'm like, yeah. it's just weird when you get a perspective as a, like, I don't know the, what you thought as a kid, these people were yeah. super cool. And then you, as you, you get wiser, you're like, Oh, they were messes, complete fucking disasters. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's, yeah. Everything gets deeper. It's, but, uh, yeah. Did you, cause were you more of a classic rock guy or did you move? Obviously you moved away from classic rock and like, the, the, um, right? like, I don't think, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I barely, I don't think I've moved away from anything that I've liked, like pretty much the things that I liked as a kid, I still really like. Um, but I've, I've always, um, been, I've always jumped around like a, as far as genres go, I, I, um, like as a you know as a kid and still i think um i feel like i can i can be into anything any genre um when i was really into classic rock was like available to me because that was what my parents had in their record collection um so that was sort of in around the house but but what was also around not in my house but just nearby was like punk i mean growing up in southern california in the 80s you know um punk was something that was really like you know it was in some form you know it was really accessible um culturally so i was really into southern california punk music um and i was also really into blues because you know classic rock um, kind of led me to that and jazz. Um, I had like a couple of friends. I just always had like mentor friends that turned me on to stuff. I had like a, a friend that was a, like a kind of this jazz prodigy kid who got me into jazz, you know, when I was really young and, um, and, um, you know, I was lucky to play music with older folks who would tell me about stuff. And, you know, like when I was in high school, I started getting real into like, um, like the residents and Captain Beefheart and stuff like that. And, um, and through that, I got into, you know, kind of like some classical music and electronic music and soundtracks. And, um, you know, I loved reggae as a kid. I was also super, I was, you know, like I was just into everything pretty much, except I have to say my, the areas that I really had a blind side to were like hip hop, um, and probably as I don't know what else, like yeah, there's a certain year, there's like, I think mean, there's it's like around like 89, 90, where I just started to kind of completely disconnect from whatever was happening currently. Like as grunge was kind of getting going, I loved punk and I loved like post-punk and I loved like the early, I loved uh, Dinosaur Jr. as far as like grunge type music goes. But then I really was not into like, nirvana and i was not into sort of like all, everything that kind of came after that as as um underground music became you know more as it sort of morphed into like 
as Nirvana, you know, brought underground music out into mainstream music, I think I just sort of like started to disconnect just from the sounds of music at that time of, of rock music at that time. I just was not, I wasn't into current stuff. So like in the nineties, I just was like living under a rock and I just became sort of like into collecting records and just old music really. Um, and then I found underground music that I liked that was contemporary and that sort of brought me back. But like moving, I went to UC Santa Cruz for, I went to college there and there was a, there was a lot of cool underground music there. So that kind of brought me back to contemporary music. It, it, was there a tangible reason you didn't like Nirvana and that stuff that was going on or was it? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, I wanted to like, I mean, I would have, it'd be, I, I wanted to like, I mean, I had a friend in there who showed me bleach like before the, I think before nevermind came out, I had a friend who was into them was like, showed me bleach. And I was like, there was something about it that um, just aesthetically was a little bit too, um, it sounded like, like guitar center music to me. Like the sounds were sort of, were like too modern or too, it sounded, it was like metal in a way that I wasn't into. And I guess, oh yeah, I should say, so I was into some kind of metal in a way. I was only into like old, like all my friends in high school were metalheads and we would, I was always being teased about being into like the Grateful Dead and not being, I wasn't a shredder on guitar, you know, and I wasn't into, wasn't really into metal, but I, we found things, I would find kind of the common ground. So I liked, you know, I liked Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and I love Black Sabbath. It's still one of my all time favorite bands. And, but, but as far as like modern metal, it was like, I liked Slayer. I liked early Metallica, but, um, and I liked like, we, I went to see Morbid Angel with them. I love Morbid Angel and stuff. There was certain like really hard stuff that I liked, but in general, I was not into like modern kind of metal music. And I just felt, I just didn't like the sounds, the choice of sounds or something. Like I didn't like the drum sounds or the guitar sounds. And I just, in the late 80s, like as a teenager, I sort of started to diverge just sonically from like my taste in sounds started to really diverge from like modern contemporary rock. I liked, I liked, I was looking for something different. I guess I had to be different. I had, had to be different, you know? Right. So I didn't, and, and also I should say I was at a Nirvana. So one of the things I didn't like about Nirvana was I didn't like his voice. I didn't like the, the kind of like, you know, like I just didn't, I thought it's kind of, I just was kind of like too, this wasn't my thing, but I went to see Dinosaur Jr. play at the Palladium and it was whole, whole Nirvana Dinosaur Jr. in that order. And, um, and I was, I got a front, I was right in the front, like front row center because I was waiting for Dinosaur Jr. But when Nirvana came out, you know, like this crazy pit erupted and I was being, I got stuck in there and I got like, like smashed against the, you know, the, the barrier and I was just like, and just all the, the crowd suddenly turned into like all guys. I mean, it's a mostly guy kind of scene anyway, I guess, but really it was just like suddenly like all just huge guys all around me, just like meat kind of meathead vibe. And I just was like, Oh, I hate this band, you know, <laughs> because they were like, because they were huge. They were like, these guys were on MTV. Suddenly I'm being like pushed up against this barrier by a bunch of meatheads. And I was just like, no, I'm never going to like this band. <laughs> But now I understand why they are so important. And I do like some things about them, but I hate Dave Grohl. <laughs> Is that the drummer's name? The, yeah, the, the drummer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate, I hate, I don't, I don't like his drum. I mean, I know that people appreciate how, I know his drumming is like perfect, 
for that style or whatever. It's like a, but it's just so like, it's, it's super basic. And I know that's like, what's cool about it too. But I just, at the time I was just like, this sounds like every, every guy that sits at a drum set at guitar center sounds like this. You know what I mean? Anybody can do this. I just was like, this has no, this is, has no soul to me. So I was coming from more of a punk background. And to me, that just wasn't punk. It was, it was very metal or something or, but I don't know if, if I had that kind of dualistic mindset about everything. So I mean, meatheads are going to turn me off to any, like I, I, and I relate, I like, I like Nirvana, but like the meatheads yeah. came in pretty fast. And, uh, well, with any kind of, I mean, I, I mean now, you know, it's like, I'm sure that could have been any band. I mean, I might've felt that way about every, 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 uh, there's, there's, uh, there's that element of most things in our culture, you know, but they all get, everything that, gets ruined. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you just, I don't know, like as a kid, I guess, you know, like sometimes you just, you just sort of like pick this sort of arbitrary stance about things. And I was like that. So I, 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 not to obsess about you self-recording as a kid, but were you also like conscious of, cause I know, I know you were obsessed with revolver and like, were you conscious of like pro- producing and production back then and trying to emulate sort of that no. kind of product? No, no, I wasn't like, I mean, it's not like people now, like, I mean, like, I, I think I had heard of a compressor and it was like a pedal that didn't really do anything. It was a guitar pedal that didn't really do anything. Like that was like the extent of my knowledge of, you know, like as far as EQ, I was like, there's two doms on my four track. There's bass, there's, there's a low and high or bass and treble or whatever. It's like, I didn't, I was really not technical and I still kind of resist. I mean, now I'm more of a nerd, nerdy technical person. I, and now I've, I, you know, whatever. But when I was younger, I, uh, um, I really was not into the technique of recording. Although I, I mean, I, I appreciated how I loved how the records that I listened to sounded. And I was, I guess I was kind of curious about how they were made, but in a way I also thought I'm going to make, I, I can't, I, I wanted my records to probably be, to sound sort of terrible. I was kind of like, I sort of was proud of my lack of, lack of technical knowledge. And I was, I kind of persisted in that way until, um, like Deerhoof playing in Deerhoof probably was where I started to get more like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to get some sounds that I hear. I became interested in when, what things did at that point a little bit more, but I've still have like always resisted. Um, you know, I, that there was like the idea that there's like a right way to do something, I always wanted to do things in sort of like a, a sort of shoddy, not shoddy, but a sort of like, I wanted there to be something a little off about the way I did things. Is there so an, I didn't learn that. that stuff. <laughs> did you find like a freedom within that? Keep not knowing so much the technical aspect. Um, I think I'm, I think it's more just a matter of like, of like knowing of like, um, knowing that there's a limit to like my brain space, how much space there is in my brain and just saving space for what I thought was more important, which I still think is more important is, um, is just music itself. Like just, you know, just good, good parts, um, good performance, you know, good ideas, like aesthetic, like, you know, just having a vision and some sort of artistic vision. I didn't, I, I mean, I, I just know that if, 
I feel like you can't be every most most people can't be good at everything, and I'm I definitely can't be good at everything. I've just tried to save brain space for like what I feel like I can do, or what I care most about. So I still yeah I still don't care about about techni- technical recording stuff <clears throat> as much. I'd much rather listen to great music recorded terribly than bad music recorded really well. I wonder so. why that why music can be good and recorded poorly but you can't shoot a film poorly <laughs> like you shoot a film. well yeah i mean I, I guess when we're i guess when we're saying good and bad i mean these are totally um these are totally like normative you know things i mean like um people probably said like breathless probably people probably said that oh, it looks terrible but now you know we, oh it's beautiful because it's um, You're talking about the remake with Richard uh, Gere, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, not that yeah. crappy French one, the Richard <laughs> Gere one, the good American one. <laughs> exactly. Um, did, but I, yeah, did people think Breathless looked shitty? I, I, I mean, I I don't know. I, I was. This is probably it was probably example, jarring. But, that's for sure. For yeah, or I mean, like Cassavetes. I'm sure people probably said that that those movies looked bad. Or I mean, they were they, they were shot without technical. Oh no! I shouldn't say that. Who knows? Actually, I don't know. But, but um, it seems like they prioritize. They have other priorities that are like more about performance and and sort of like concepts than that sort of technical execution of recording. I don't know. Have you? Does, yeah. Do you have an interest in scoring film? It seems like you. Oh I, yeah! I mean, I would like to. I don't. Um, I had a bad experience one time making some commercial music for something where I just didn't like the process of like working with like a committee and the kind of the way that you get feedback. Um, but, but, uh, so that's, that's made me not pursue like doing, you know, composing like that, but, um, for the right film, I would love to write it. Yeah. I mean, doing film scores would be cool. I, I, it would have to be something where they like actually like what I do and, um, where I was able to like, maybe work closely with the director about, you know, like I would like to write music that was more, um, connected to the actual film than I think a lot of film music is. Yeah. I don't think it, I mean, I have some friends who do it and they're like, it's a job and you've got to take a lot of no's from a guy who doesn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like in the right situation, I would love to, but I I feel like that's probably so rare. I've never, I haven't, I haven't, um, yeah, that offer hasn't been there, but yeah, sure. That would be cool. For some reason, the film elevator to the gallows keeps popping in mind. Oh yeah. Miles Davis. Yeah. And I think he kind of was given like, you know, of course, but again, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I wonder what the process was like if they, if, if Miles just recorded a bunch of music and just gave it to him and then they found a way to use it or, um, yeah, I don't know. I love the idea of like, um, you know, like, uh, David Lynch and Angela Badalamenti, like kind of composing together, like before the movie's even shot or something like that. Like, I like, Oh, I didn't know I like that. the idea. I think they did. I could be wrong, but, um, like, like film scores that are just sort of like really like theme themes, themes that are, that sort of inspire the mood of the movie instead of music that's supposed to sort of like amp up the, the, the dramatic failings of, of a movie, which I think is usually what, 
movie music does. It sort of is like fills up, fills in space and just sort of like does the lifting that the movie itself should have done. I would never want to do that. But that seems cheating. You know? That seems like cheating to me too. Cause especially with like, yeah. you see it a lot in horror film where it's like, okay, I'm supposed to be getting scared now. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, you. right. Right. But then there's some horror films that are like, where that, where you just think of the soundtrack and you're like, Oh my God, like that is the movie. Like, like um phantasm or like um john carpenter soundtracks where you're like it's so um doesn't he do it's some so of his? organic yeah john carpenter wrote all of his all of them soundtracks i believe or, i mean i think he had a partner that he he did with but yeah he yeah he made that he made all the music himself so it's like it's really a part of the um the dna of the film i didn't want to say i didn't want to say dna but i guess that's what it is (laughs) kubrick i think is i mean he doesn't i don't know what hand he had in his scores but his music always Uh seems to be like it's like a whole it's a whole character almost sure yeah uh we were just um my band was stranded in the northwest we had a show fall through and we, we stayed in this um a friend of mine has a cabin in um in the wood in the near Mount Hood outside of Portland. And it's right by the hotel where the the shining the exterior of the shining was shot. Did you go see so it? So we were driving we did, yeah, it was great. Um we went we were driving along the road and, you know, just uh, imagining that the Wendy Carlos music is so it's such a part of that the yeah. beginning of the shining. Um did, yeah. Did you ever watch the documentary about all the different ideas of what The Shining is actually about? It's insane. Oh no. There's uh, huge like no, there's just whole online communities where they right. everybody has like in, and it's like when then you watch it and you go, "Oh, I could see that one and that one." And like that it's about this you know, the slaughter and decimation of the Native Americans <laughs> and it's like uh, and then yeah. you watch it and you go, "Okay, yeah, I guess it is." <laughs> yeah. I've never, I haven't gone super deep into Kubrick, Kubrick studies. My, my old bandmate, Greg from Deerhoof is obsessed with Stanley Kubrick. So I, I never had to, I was like, felt like, felt oh, did like you say that Greg? Thing. Yeah, Greg. Oh, did I didn't know he him? was, I've talked to Greg a couple times. Yeah. Uh, don't ever get him started about Stanley Kubrick. He'll, he'll never escape. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he, he goes deep with Stanley Kubrick. Uh, actually, I would totally do that. I don't think I could go as deep as him, but uh, that's fascinating to me. Do you have, because you've done a lot of producing, as you do have sort of uh, people that you like as influences, yeah, I'm trying to word, think of how you worded it, but anyway, do you have that mm. same sort of aspect when you produce and producers that you sort of try to, like you said, you role play John Entwistle? Do you, yeah. Do you, um, I mean, probably... I. Um, probably a lot of my producing heroes are like, I mean, I, again, I'm kind of like come from the home recording sort of like, I don't know. I mean, there are, I guess there are like producer producers that I'm really a fan of for sure. But, um, actually I tend to really go for the people recording themselves or something, I think, or who, I don't know, who are my heroes? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I just started learning about the real legit producer, you know, producer people like Glenn Johns and stuff like that. I mean, those people are really interesting to me, but I don't think about them when I'm producing. I'm more thinking about like, um, 
I'm more thinking about like the parts and stuff and just sort of like, I think, I think like a musician more than a producer. That, that's what I would say to that question. It's more like, how are we going to, um, I don't know. How are we going to play this? How are we going to get the, the best? How are we going to make this song really be everything that it's supposed to be? I'm not so much thinking about like um, emulating my heroes in the way that I might be with musicians, with actual songwriters or musicians, but with producing. Cause I, cause again, I just feel like producing it's, it's sort of, it's more, it's so behind the scenes. It's really like a being a, it's being like a psychologist. It's like being um, like a doula or something. You're like, just sort of like coaching a person through this experience and just trying to keep them thinking about the right things and, and um, just keeping it, keeping the tape rolling or whatever. I, I never thought it like, do you have to sort of, cause you said like, it's like being a psychologist. Do you have, cause I know the neuroses yeah. of creating and how you could just, or I can spiral. Yeah. And go. Yeah. We all can. Yeah. How much of that is like keeping spirits up and pep talking? Yeah. That's most of it. I would say, I mean, if, you know, you just have to know how to like, you have to know how to keep the technical end under control, but you don't have to be like a genius about you know, about recording equipment, you just have to, um, you just have to have kind of like a intu intuition about like what a person might need or what their, what their struggles might be. Um, and you have to be able to like, I guess, really separate out what's, um, what is working and what's not working just musically and be able to like have the words to, with that person and everybody needs different words. Um, you have to have the words to be able to sort of, um, just talk about that stuff in a way that doesn't feel like threatening or, um, you know, keeping, keeping it constructive. Do you have to sort of keep yourself in check with infusing sort of your approach into things and allowing them, because that seems like that would be, um, it depends. I mean, some people, some people don't want your approach. Like, I mean, I've had some people that I've worked with that I think like, I'm not even sure if they've heard my music. They might just, they might just be like, you know, they just need someone to like, just get it done. Kind of some people really want, I mean, it depends. Every, every person I work with is different, but um, some people really want my, that, you know, my like, my um, aesthetic, sense so i try to i try to get a read pretty quickly on what they what it is that they're looking for from me but but not everybody wants the same thing so yeah is there a certain type of artist you want to work with or will you work with are you pretty open um no yeah i there are there is a type of artist that i want to work with i mean i i mean there's there are many types but um i mean the thing that i really do gravitate towards is like i like um i like bands where people play, you know, where people are like tracking together. I like people that are, where like, um, it's, I don't know. I mean, probably because I, I have such a hard time, um, with execute. I, I, I'm not that much of an instrumentalist in terms of like, uh, executing my, my song when I'm playing everything. It's, it's so much work getting decent takes. I like to work with people that like play their instruments. Well, <laughs> Um, I mean, I mean, almost everyone I work with does, I mean, they probably all play way better than I do actually. But, but what I'm saying is like, um, I want to get past that. That's the, that's the kind of like 
like drudgery that I have to deal with in my own thing when I'm recording all of everything by myself, which hopefully like I'm working on a new record now that's not going to be like that. But, um, but like ideally when I'm working with other people, it's great if it's like they know their songs and they can play them. And we're not, we're not focused on just getting performances, although that's fine too. I mean, so, I mean, you know, like that's, that has to happen too, but I guess my dream, my dream, like, you know, band to work with is like people that like really play together and like, you know, know their songs and respect each other and treat each other with uh, dignity. <laughs> that's what I care about actually more than anything. That, that's my ideal client is just like a person that treats everyone with respect. <laughs> How'd you like working with Nicholas Kravoyevich, whose name I probably just butchered. He spoke oh, Nicholas Kirkovich. Kirkovich. I couldn't get, I can, yeah. he's, he's, uh, saying your praises and said you're one of the sweetest people. Oh, nice. Yeah, I love Nick too. He's yeah. Um, I I haven't worked with him that much on his music, but I've we've played as players on um on a session for someone else maybe once or twice. I love yeah. I mean, I love playing with Nick. is a great musician. Um, and he has a beautiful like vision for like um realizing his songs like uh like in the moment in uh like when he, when he performs i think he has a great sense of like he can really like read the room and sort of like hold people's attention um and um yeah his his songs are are really can be really moving and he's, he's such a he's such a lifer you know he's he really loves music. Yeah. I guess that would be my other criteria too, of like a person I want to work with. It's just like, I want to, I love, I love people who love music, you know? And I, I mean, I know that that, I know everybody loves music, but some people, some people that make music, I think also love other things about it. I mean, nothing wrong with that, but I just, I love people that are just, that are, um, Oh, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I just, the pe people that really uh, enjoy enjoy what they're doing. Um, I wanted to go. I, I keep going back to your childhood, but I'm kind of fascinated. But did you were did you grow up around? Like, was your dad taking you to show? Were you like around all these people, or like was he take you to work and you'd be like um, running around the backstage of the Wiltern? <laughs> yeah, my dad did take me to shows. Um, I mean, some of it was. Uh, let's see. Yeah, at the Wiltern, I saw a lot of stuff at the Wiltern. Um, when I was real little and he worked at A&M Records, he took me to the studios there sometimes. So I saw some sessions. I don't know what they were. Um, he took me to some places. Like one memory I have that was not like seeing a show, but something that I, I don't know why I made a big impression on me was like he took me to the, um, there's this place, the Starwood, that was like a famous sort of like, uh, I I think it was like kind of like a sleazy, you know, Hollywood like rock club, but there was like a lot of punk history there. Like the germs, I think, I think that's where you see in the decline of Western civilization. If I'm not mistaken, I think that's maybe where the germs footage is from. He took me to this place, the Starwood sometime during the afternoon. That was like, I don't know why we went there, but it was like, he was, we were running errands and it was like, I was really little and it was like, 
just sort of like in this like kind of dingy rock club during the daytime. <laughs> it was just like, here's a glimpse of your, your future. But, um, <laughs> but something about that really like made it, made an impression on me. And I just thought, and in hindsight, knowing that it was, the, it was the Starwood, I feel like that was really cool to, to have gone there as a kid. But, um, he took me to see, sometimes he would take me to see things that were like, I don't know why, like, he, um, when Joe Satriani first came out, my dad was like, this guy's the new, <laughs> my dad always has a, like, this is the new Jimi Hendrix. First, he took me to see Stevie Ray Vaughan when he played at the Wiltern. This is the new Jimi Hendrix. And I was like, this is cool, but it's not, it's not Hendrix. <laughs> Actually, looking back on it, though, it was really cool. Cause like, that was when he was, that was like the heyday, um, for him. That, so I feel cool that I saw that, but, um, I didn't think he was as good as Hendrix. And then he took me to see Joe Satriani. This is all, again, the new Hendrix was not into it at all, but, um, but that was kind of funny. He took, it was at the Roxy. So it was cool to be like exposed to weird random shit like that. And, um, Oh, what else? I don't know. Probably more, but yeah, they took me, they took me to some shows. This, Definitely. I don't know why, but do you, how, clear is your memory of being a kid standing in the Starwood because like to me I was like wondering what your sense memory is there I know that sounds like a fucking question for the actor's studio <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like to me yeah. my grandfather owned bars in Chicago and I remember going to bars like that as a kid and just the odor of like yeah. nicotine and liquor and sweat right those places are so yeah they're really heavy I don't yeah I'm trying to remember I mean I just kind of re- my memory of it is so is is so far away, but um, I I mean I think I was just like, why are we here? What are we doing here? You know? <laughs> who know? I really don't know what my dad. I mean, it could have been my dad. Who knows what what kind of business was going on there? I really don't know. Um, my dad was sometimes, you know, like I guess he would um, bring he would set up like sort of showcases for artists that they were thinking about signing or maybe that they had just signed or something. I'm guessing it was probably something like that. really don't know. So A&M was Herb Albert, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then also for a while, my dad worked, he, he was sort of like Herb Albert's manager That's or, or sort of his, or he ran his, he ran um, Herb Albert's. Oh man, I really don't. It was a little confusing. He was, he did a bunch of things for Herb Albert. Let's just say oh, he ran the found. I'm sorry. He ran my, he ran the Herb Alpert foundation, which is now, I mean, it's a pretty big, um, they donate to like music to, uh, money to like music schools, like Cal arts. There's like a bunch of like Herb Alpert, you know, school of music and stuff. This was the foundation that, that was doing that. So my dad was running the foundation. And then when Herb Alpert would have like a new album, um, in the nineties, my dad would be sort of like his manager. So it's pretty well. I mean, not to brag, I have probably about 10 Herb Albert albums in my home. <laughs> Very cool. Actually, I, I, I love her Albert's music. I do too. I, I was, it's aged very well for me. I don't, I don't, somehow it became kind of a joke at some point and I don't quite, I don't know why that is. Like, I mean, a lot of things do that, but it's like, people don't yeah. realize that dude was fucking huge, like huge. Sure. It's cool. I mean, I, I'm, it's interesting to me how um, how instrumental music could be so popular, um, and it just kind of like maybe it seems like it says something about like 
people's sophistication at other times, you know, that like music like that would be, I mean, to me, I think that's kind of sophisticated to be like, to listen to instrumental, to be really into instrumental music. I don't know why that just seems so, it seems so, so quaint or something. Yeah, I actually never, but like I, a friend of mine called me pretentious because I like jazz, which I don't, I still don't quite understand. <laughs> it's like, I was like, I'm fine. You don't understand why they called you pretentious? Because I like jazz. It's like, yeah. I don't, and I don't like flaunt it. I'm not like, well, let me correct you on it. Like I, but yeah. I think people are like what you were saying about instrumental music. It's like, it is weird. Like people don't listen yeah, to well, instrumental music like they used to. Yeah. I mean, I think it takes, it takes a little, it takes a leap because like, you know, vocal music really like, well, vocal music really just comes out to you. Like there's words, there's a person talking to you. Instrumental music is like, it's more abstract. It maybe takes a little more like attention or something. And it also allows you more space as a listener to like project into it where there aren't words, you know, because it doesn't have words. Um, so I, I do think that that is sort of sophisticated. Have you? And done- it's cool. It's cool that those songs are so like simple and the mood of them is so like upbeat too. It's kind of- <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to this episode with Chris Cohen. Like I said, at the top of the show, there is bonus content on my Patreon, thematdwire.com. You could, link you to my the patreon subscription and there's actually a link in the bio in the show notes to the part two um where we talk about Cass mccombs deer hoof and working at the same restaurant uh it's great thank you and please keep supporting my show i appreciate it if you sink or swim that's what they say